Good morning again. Good morning again. Grab a Bible, church. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in the Word this morning. We are in, like I said, week three of our study through the second half of Exodus. Look forward to our time together over the next few minutes. I don't like silence. Anyone else? I don't like silence. I, I'm one of those people, and maybe you can relate, where if I'm ever home alone, I need something on in the background. Like for me, it's office reruns or uh, sports talk radio or a podcast or I got to call someone. The same principle applies for me when I'm in the car driving. I like to make a phone call or listen to the radio. I, I find that I get restless and sometimes even anxious in silence. And I don't think that's just me. Let me give you an example. I think this is, is a, maybe a human phenomenon. I was in uh, Discount Tire last week right there on Richmond Road. Uh, we needed a new tire for our car. And I don't know if you've been there or not, but how it works at Discount Tire is you drive up to their garage, you drive your car right up to the garage, you step out, you give them their key, your keys. Um, they take your car, they drive it into the garage to put a new tire on it or whatever. And then you go and you wait in their lounge area while they're putting the new tire on your car. Well, that's what I did. No problem. All good. So I, I park and I give the guy my keys and I walk into the lounge area and then I realize I made a tragic mistake. I forgot my phone in the cup holder of the car. And so I walk into the lounge area of discount tire and there are probably five or six other people there in the waiting area and they're all sitting there and guess what they're all doing? Like every single one of them. And I'm sitting there sitting, facing forward and smiling like a psychopath. <laughs> like, the lady's probably thinking like, what is wrong with this guy? Why is he not just look at his phone like everyone else? And I say this almost to my shame. I want to make this a real time of confession this morning, church. I was so uncomfortable that I went back into the garage, asked them to pull my car down so I could get my phone. I didn't want to sit there. And like, I think this gets at something uh, deeper for us. I am uncomfortable with silence. I think most of us, if we were fed truth serum this morning, would land in a similar place. We don't like unoccupied time. We don't like restless moments. Now, we're going to see that this morning. And we're going to see that I think there's a danger in that because when most of us get silence, what we do is we grab our phone and we turn on the radio. We fill our lives and our silence and our unoccupied time with busyness. And there's nothing inherently wrong with busyness. But I also know there are times when we have that silence, that period of waiting, of restlessness, when we can fill our lives with things that are worse than busyness, things that don't honor the Lord. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let me catch us up in Exodus 32. We're going to see some silence in Exodus 32. Let me set the stage for us. Here's where we are. Remember, in Exodus 32, God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And now they've been brought all the way through the desert to the foot of Mount Sinai, where Moses, the leader of the people of Israel, would go up and down the mountain to talk to God. He would hear from God, meet with God, and then come back down the mountain and communicate to the people whatever God wanted them to know. In Exodus 20, God wants them to know the Ten Commandments. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 24, the people promise to obey them, and they make a covenant with God. Pastor Hunter talked about this a couple weeks ago. They say this in chapter 24, verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
See, chapter 24 is the marriage ceremony moment for Israel and God. They're saying, I do. They're committing to following God and honoring God as long as they live. And at this point in time, when chapter 24 ends, everything is all good for the Israelites. And so God calls Moses back up the mountain for further instruction. But here's the thing. This particular trip on the mountain for Moses was different than the previous ones. The end of chapter 24 tells us that this trip up the mountain for Moses would last 40 days. As we saw last week, God is giving Moses pretty detailed instruction about the tabernacle and the priesthood. It would take a while, and so Moses would be up there for 40 days. And up until this point, Israel had never been without Moses for that long. And since Moses had been functioning as a prophet of God, Israel had never been without the words of God for that long. They were used to hearing from Moses and hearing from God just about every day. And now all of a sudden, there's nothing. There's silence. The 40-day stretch of waiting, of unoccupied time, and of restlessness. And that's where we are at the beginning of our passage today. Moses is up on the mountain hearing from God, and the people are idle. And as we'll see, that idleness turns into idolatry. Let's start walking through this passage, and it'll become really clear. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I want us to see what's happening here. The people, they can't take the waiting. They can't take the silence, and so they gathered themselves together. The original language implies some hostility here. They gathered themselves against Aaron, Moses' brother, and they tell him, get up, Aaron, make us gods to go before us. Now, I think it's easy for us as American Christians to look at this scene and to look at this people and think, are you kidding me, Israel? Like, you've seen what God has done just months before, days before. They had seen God's power in the 10 plagues. They'd seen God part the Red Sea. They'd been fed from manna from heaven. They drank water from the rock. And now 40 days go by, and they're all ready to abandon the God who rescued them. It almost seems unbelievable. But I want to remind us of their mindset here. Up until this point for Israel, everything that God had done for them had been visible. They could see it. They could see the plagues. They could taste the manna, and they could see and talk to Moses. And now all of a sudden, they couldn't see anything. And so they go to Aaron and tell him, Aaron, make us something that we can see. Now, here's the danger in that. God is more honored when he is believed and not seen. It's really easy, church, to believe in God when you have miracles happening right in front of you. It's easy for the people to believe in God when they witness the 10 plagues or the parting of the Red Sea. It's easy to believe in God when you're an eyewitness to his power and his majesty. I mean, think about your life where you are right now. If things are going well in your life, I praise God that they are, but it's easy to proclaim God's faithfulness. Like when things are good, it's easy to see that God is good. When things are great, it's easy to trust in his character, to proclaim his sovereignty, to say, yes, Lord, you're in control, and I like that you're in control because everything is good. But man, I know this is the case for some of us in here too. When your life is falling apart, like when your relationships are crumbling, when you get laid off, or you can't shake this unrelenting 
sense of anxiety or depression, and yet you hang on. And you say, no, God is good, even though I can't see it. God is in control, even though I can't see it. Listen, church, then God is honored because you believe him even when you can't see him working. There's a special blessing in that. Jesus himself talked about this. Thomas, one of the disciples, wanted physical proof of the resurrection. He wouldn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead until he saw Jesus. And so Jesus said this, John 20, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Listen, I want us to see this right from the outset of our time. God is after this kind of belief, the kind of belief that is unshakable, unwavering, even when we can't see him working. And so if you're here this morning and you're barely hanging on, and like every day is a new challenge for you, then be encouraged by this word. Keep trusting Keep coming, keep believing, keep holding because there's a special blessing. God promises a special blessing to us when we believe even when we can't see him working. And Israel missed out on this blessing. They wanted something they could see, not something they could believe. And so they take action. Let's keep reading. Look at verse two. And Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Let me hit pause real quick. When they were leaving Egypt, God told them, plunder the Egyptians. That's where they're getting this gold. This is Egyptian gold. Verse three, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they build this golden calf, this idol, and then they have almost a worship service for it. There's a euphemism in verse six. The people sat down to eat, drink, rose up to play. There's something sketchy going on behind the words. Like I want to... To almost feel this, this is a heartbreaking story, church. That God had just given the people his 10 commandments, and then just days after promising to obey the 10 commandments, the people of Israel go right along and break the first two. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They create a God and place it above the Lord. They fashioned together a golden calf. Now, this was the epitome of foolishness. The calf couldn't see, hear, or speak. It was an inanimate object, not to mention they had just seen God wipe out all of the livestock in Egypt just days before. They knew that God was sovereign and powerful over cattle, but they do it anyway. They break the first commandment, they put another God before the Lord, and then they break the second commandment, creating an idol or an image to represent the Lord. Look at verse four. They hold up the calf and they say, these are your gods, O Israel. And so I want us to see this. For the people, this calf was supposed to represent Yahweh, the one who delivered them out of slavery, but they committed the sin of trying to fashion God in a likeness that they could understand and visualize. Calves and livestock were part of their culture and gold was the most precious thing they had. So they almost figured it couldn't hurt to represent God this way. They might have even thought that it would honor God, but in doing so, they missed out on this fundamental truth. God's glory, 
who God is cannot be represented in man-made images. God is glorious, infinitely holy, and unlike anything on earth, so we can't boil him down to an image. That's the sin behind the second commandment. And so in this one moment, God's people break the first two of God's commands, totally disregarding his word in a blatant display of rebellion. I want us to feel the weight of this moment. If the covenant ceremony in chapter 24 was the marriage between God and his people, these people are now having an affair on their honeymoon. Instant, all because they didn't wait on the Lord in the silence. Again, their idleness led them to idolatry. And I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we know how easily this can happen to us. I mean, think about it. Church, on a Sunday morning, it's so easy to come in here and to lift our hands and to sing songs of praise, to worship Jesus to have our affections stirred up for Jesus, to proclaim, yes, Jesus, I will follow you with everything that I have. But then what happens when Monday morning rolls around? How easy is it for us to wander? How prone are our souls to wandering after idols? We don't want this to be the case for us. So let's get to our notes. First Corinthians chapter 10 offers some commentary on this passage. You can check it out at home. In 1 Corinthians 10, the New Testament comments on this passage saying that these things were written for our example so that we might see and learn from the example of the Israelites. So let's study this example for a moment. The first thing we can learn from Israel, number one in your notes, we learn about the wickedness of idolatry. We learn about the wickedness of idolatry. Now, I wanna take a step back here just for a moment because if you're new to church this morning, or if you're just checking out Christianity, odds are this sounds like a pretty extreme statement, the wickedness of idolatry. Like when we hear the word idolatry, it's easy for us to conjure up images in our minds of golden calves, of people worshiping and falling down before idols like in this passage today. But in our culture right now, that's not really something that people do. I'm gonna go out on a limb here, but I'm guessing that no one has a golden idol on their mantle at home. If you do, come see me after. It's going to be a problem. No, why make this statement? Idolatry is wicked. It's because in our day today, for the Christian, idolatry is still a very real threat. In fact, it's just as dangerous an act of rebellion as it was for Israel. Our idolatry just takes different forms. We see this in two ways in our passage today. Letter A, the first danger of idolatry is worshiping a false god first danger of idolatry is in worshiping a false god. Again, by creating a god, little g god, out of melted gold, the Israelites were worshiping something else before they were worshiping Yahweh. They were putting an idol before the living God of the universe. And believe it or not, Christians, we do this too. Let me define idol for us. Tim Keller put this well. Keller said this, for the Christian... An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So here's what I want us to see this morning. We might not be bowing down and worshiping golden calves, but every single one of us is susceptible to bowing down and worshiping the things of this world over the one who made them, worshiping the created before the creator. And we might not worship those things by singing to them or praying to them, but we worship them with our time. We worship them 
with our thoughts, when we can't think about anything else. We worship these false gods with our money, when we give sacrificially in pursuit of them. We sacrifice for them. We can't imagine our lives without them. And when we do this, when we elevate something, a liturgy God, above the God of the universe, we become just as guilty of idolatry as the Israelites in Exodus 32, because we're now the ones who have said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. Then the very next day, we turn aside to false gods who have no ability to give us what God can give. And church, that is the saddest thing about this. God has created every single human being to be fully satisfied in him. And so when we try to satisfy our souls in something other than God, not only are we rejecting the God who made us, we actually end up shortchanging ourselves because whatever it is we're running after will ultimately lead us empty. Jeremiah put it like this, Jeremiah 2 verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. Again, think wickedness. The Bible's not shy about the words wickedness and evil. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So follow me here. When we turn to an idol, not only are we forsaking God, which the Bible calls evil, we're choosing a broken cistern, a vessel that no matter how much we pour into it, no matter how much we invest in it, will always leave us empty. I mean, think about that picture for a moment of a broken cistern. When we elevate something other than God, no matter how much we give to it or think about it or pray to it, it always leaves us wanting. And don't get me wrong, there might be temporary moments of fleeting satisfaction in our idols, but those temporary moments are designed just to hook us back in. Before you know it, we need the bigger raise, the newer house, or the newer phone. It's, it's never enough. Idolatry is this self-perpetuating cycle of discontentment. And that's because the created things of this world were never designed to be the objects of our worship. They were designed to point us to the one who deserves our worship. Like truly knowing God, enjoying God, worshiping God, delighting in the presence of God is the only thing that will never leave us wanting. And it's because God knows that he alone is the best thing for us. The only thing, the only one that will truly satisfy our souls. Again, the Bible calls him a fountain of living water. So listen, church, if you're here this morning, and you're seeking your affirmation or your validation or comfort in human relationships, you will end up empty. Like People will let you down. They won't give you the kind of validation or credit you think that you deserve. And if you're seeking your identity this morning in your job or in the letters that come after your name, they will leave you empty. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but in 10 billion years from now, no one's going to care about what company you ran or what degree you had. These are just examples this morning, Christian, but think through your life. What has the most pull over your emotions? What do you dream about? What angers you the most? What do you spend your free time on? What do you spend your free money on? What do you fear losing more than anything? I'm telling you, if it's not Christ, I promise you, you have to keep coming back to it. It'll demand more and more from you because it's a false God and not designed to be the ultimate object of your worship. We fall into idolatry when we put something else before the living God of the universe. It's letter A. 
But there's a second way we can commit adultery, more of a subtle way, apart from worshiping false gods. And we see this in our passage too, letter B, worshiping the true God falsely. So we can commit idolatry when we worship false gods. We see this all around in our culture today. But we can also commit idolatry when we worship the true God falsely. Remember, the people thought that the golden calf was Yahweh. They were misguided in their intentions, but their intentions might have been genuine. They might have actually wanted to honor him, but they still commit idolatry. So here's the principle I want us to see. We don't get to determine how God is worshipped or how God is thought of. God does. And when we worship God or think about God outside of the design and the parameters that he's given to us in his word, we're committing idolatry. We're breaking the second commandment. How? By creating a false image of who he is. We saw some of this last week. God laid out very specific instructions for tabernacle worship. And in violating those instructions, it didn't matter if the people were sincere in their desire to praise him, their worship was unacceptable because they didn't obey his commands. Think about Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain's offering of some fruit of the ground wasn't acceptable even though it was offered sincerely because it wasn't how God wanted to be worshiped. Put it another way, we're potty training right now our two-year-old son. And he's at the phase, he's crushing it, but he's at the phase right now where when he's got to go, everything comes off. Like even the socks, which means it's like a half an hour endeavor. And the other day we were working, okay, man, I need you to take a break. We're going to go potty real quick. It's going to be good. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to stop playing with his siblings. He's having a great time. He's kind of dragging his feet. And I tell him again, okay, bud, it's time to go potty. You got to go. And he looks at me and he comes up to me real, real sweet. He gives me a kiss and says, daddy, I love you. That's awesome, right? No, it's not what I asked you to do. Like, it's great. And he's, he's sincere in that desire to show affection. I love that. And I praise God that that desire is in my son. But listen, he was disobeying something I told him to do. And so no matter how sincere he was in that display of affection, if it went against what I asked him to do, it wasn't all that great. Now, here's the point for us. I want you to track with me here. In the context of worshiping God and thinking of God rightly, the sincerity of our worship has no validity, or has no impact on the validity of our worship. Let me explain what I mean. You can be incredibly sincere about what you believe. You can believe it with all your heart, but you can still be wrong about those beliefs. Let me give you an example. I could imagine and believe with all my heart that this rickety pulpit is pink. And I could believe it really, really think it's pink. I could bet the farm on the fact that this pulpit is pink, completely genuine and sincere in my beliefs that I'm preaching right now from a pink pulpit. But no matter how firmly convinced I am of that belief, does it make it true? No. I mean, I could imagine that I'm 10 feet tall. I could be fully convinced that I have three arms. Listen, I say this with all the, the love and grace and compassion in the world. I could be fully convinced that I'm a different gender. But no matter how much I believe it, it doesn't make it true. People do this, we do this with God all the time. I'll hear well-meaning variations of, well, the God that I worship is a God of kindness and tolerance. Or I like to think of God as accepting. 
never punishing anyone, just accepting all people. And it's great, all due respect, totally fine that you think that, but that's not what the Bible says. We know that Psalm 89 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, and that Proverbs 11 says that the wicked will not go unpunished. People say all the time, well, I like to think of God as the sum of all religions, with different religions having equal validity. Every religion's got a part of the truth, but we know that Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So basically, you can think whatever you want, but that doesn't make it true. Listen, church, this is what was happening in Exodus 32. The people had made a God of their own creation to represent Yahweh. And in doing so, they had disregarded what Yahweh said about himself. So be wary, Christian, of creating a God in your own image who never disagrees with you and who never makes you feel uncomfortable. I should be honest, I'm uncomfortable sometimes with the doctrine of hell. Sometimes I'm uncomfortable with the doctrine of God's wrath. But listen, I don't have the right, and you don't have the right, to minimize certain attributes of God that we're uncomfortable with or worship him in ways that go contrary to his word. That's what this example is showing us. When we do that, just like the Israelites, we commit idolatry. All right, take a breath. That's a lot, a lot of content. I know that. We've seen this morning in this text the wickedness of idolatry. And I think if we're honest, again, truth serum moment this morning, I think we see a lot of ourselves in the people of Israel. I certainly see myself. John Calvin, writing about idolatry, said that the human heart is a factory of idols. We are prone to this. It's something that we all deal with in different ways. We are prone to wander. And in those moments of silence and waiting, I think we're extra susceptible to temptation. I think there's room this morning for real and genuine self-introspection and room this morning for genuine Holy Spirit conviction. There are ways that all of us have held up and worshiped false gods, and there are ways where all of us have worshiped God wrongly, have worshiped him falsely, concocted a God of our own imagination and our own design. But by God's grace, conviction isn't where this passage leaves us. It's gonna leave us with some hope. So look at number two in your notes, the necessity of atonement. If we see ourselves, church, in this passage, then that means that we are guilty, that all of us are guilty. We're all idolaters standing in front of a holy God. And then if we ever wanna be with God, We ever want to be forgiven of the sin of our idolatry of false gods and worshiping the true God falsely, then we need a covering. We need atonement, forgiveness for the idols that we've run after. And this atonement, that forgiveness comes in letter A, genuine intercession. Genuine intercession. Show us this in the text. Look all the way at the end of chapter 32, beginning in verse 30. God is in the process of carrying out right and just judgment against the people. And at the end of the chapter, Moses goes before the Lord to intercede on their behalf. Beginning in verse 30, the Bible says this. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, 
But if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you, that's the promised land. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron had made. So here's the deal. Because of their idolatry, the people needed atonement. They needed covering. They needed a way for God to forgive their sin totally and completely. And so Moses, in this passage, offers to make atonement for them. Verse 32 is one of the most incredible prayers of all of Scripture. Look at 32 again. Here's what Moses is saying. God, forgive their sin. Forgive the sin of your people. But if not, if you don't want to forgive their sin, then take me instead. Blot me out of the book that you have written. Listen, Moses is standing in the gap for the people, interceding on behalf of the people, offering to make atonement for them, saying, God, take me instead of them. Listen, Christian, this is what Jesus Christ has done for your idolatry. This is what Jesus Christ has done for your golden calves. It's what he's done for our sin. Think about it. In our sin, in our idolatry, every single one of us belongs with the people of Israel that were struck down as a result of God's judgment. That should be us. But Jesus, our true and better Moses, looked at, their, looked at our rebellion, looked at the wickedness of our idolatry, looked at the punishment that we deserve, church, and then he said, I'll take it. Like, I'll take the punishment. Just like Moses, Jesus walked up a mountain to make atonement. Just like Moses, Jesus said, take me, not them. And then better than Moses, Jesus died in our place. He died in our place on the cross, bearing the punishment of our idolatry, of our sin in his body. And in doing so, he appeased the wrath of God against my idolatry and your idolatry and purchased grace and mercy for us beyond measure. Mercy and grace that is accessible to every single person today. Listen, the wickedness of our idolatry pales in comparison to the mercy of our Christ. That's what Jesus has done for us. And because of the intercession of Jesus, every sinful thought, every misplaced idolatrous desire, every unholy action is forgiven and redeemed because he said, take me and not them. And because of that, we see letter B, faithfulness maintained. As a result of Moses' intercession, in verse 34, God promises to maintain his faithfulness to the people despite their sin and to lead them on to the promised land. Next week, we'll talk about the implications of that. But for the Christian, as a result of the intercession of Christ, God's faithfulness is preserved in our lives too. We talked about this last week. God now treats us not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of the performance of his son. That means that for us, when we still stumble and we still fall into idolatry, when we're still tempted by those same idolatrous desires, God doesn't look at Colin and see Colin. He looks at me and he sees the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus because of my genuine intercessor. So here's how we're going to close today. I want to invite the band back up. We're going to take the supper this morning, and we're going to do it for a pretty specific reason. I'll explain why in a second. Before we do that, I'm going to 
wait two minutes and then invite the ushers forward, but I want to have everyone's attention on me for a moment. The Lord's Supper is a meal for Christians, a meal for followers of Jesus. And so that means if you're here with us this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Christ, know this, one, we're so glad that you're here. Keep asking questions. Keep exploring Christianity. But we want to ask that the plates will be passed here in a moment, that you just pass them on, that you would abstain from taking the supper. If you want to learn more about what it might mean to be a follower of Jesus, to trust in Jesus, then come talk to me. Come talk to someone on our prayer team. We'd love to have that conversation with you. But for the Christians in the room this morning, I want to explain why we're going to take the supper. Remember back to the beginning of our time, how Exodus 32 opens. The people of Israel were idle in the silence. At chapter 32 opened, they had a choice. They could do one of two things. They could wait on God and be content in the provision and the protection of God, or they could fall into idolatry. And we know, we just read it, they fell and it leads them to disaster. One of the ways that God brought about judgment for them in this chapter is that Moses actually melted down the golden calf, ground it up, and then put it in their drinking water. Like the people had to drink, to receive, to take in the fruits of their idolatry. Now listen, this morning as Christians, we too have a choice. Like I think you know this as well as I do. The world right now is bombarded Barding us with false gods, the gods of pleasure, the gods of success, the gods of relationships, the gods of materialism, the god of sex, all of these liturgy gods are demanding and screaming for your attention this morning. They want your worship. They want your affection. They want you. They want your eyes off of Christ and onto themselves. And they know, we talked about this, that if you succumb to that worship desire of an idol, it'll always leave you wanting. And they want that. They want you run into the ground. And so Christians, this morning we have a choice to look at those false gods and to worship them, to take in them, or to take in Christ. So the reason I want us to take the supper, church, is because there is a spiritual presence of Christ in the elements we know that it's not the literal body and the literal blood of Christ, but God uses the symbol of the bread and the juice to nourish his people. And so I want to give us some pretty specific instructions this morning. I want to do some heart work at the end of our time. The ushers are going to come forward in a moment, and the band's going to play behind them, and everyone's going to get the elements. If you need something gluten-free, raise your hand. we got some in the back. We can make that happen for you. But when everyone's taking the elements, I want you to look up and face me, and that's how I'll know we're ready. And then I'm actually going to cut the band off, and we're going to spend about 60 seconds in total silence, just like the Israelites at the beginning of chapter 32. And in that moment, we're going to have that choice. We're running after the gods of this world, or are we running after the risen king, the God of this universe? And in that moment of silence, and I'll explain this again in a moment, I'm going to encourage us to do three things. Number one, ask God to reveal to you where you are susceptible to idolatry this morning. Maybe as I've been preaching, you already know what that thing is for you. You know what that person is for you. Ask God, God, where is my worship being competed for? What is trying to get my attention? What is vying for your place in my heart? Ask God. Ask God to reveal that to you and ask him in a genuine way. Maybe the answer is nothing. Praise God. But if the answer is nothing, ask God, what's the most dangerous thing in my life right now? Number two, the second thing I want you to do is to genuinely and wholeheartedly repent. Repent just means to turn back. God, I don't want that idol. I want you. You're the fountain of living waters. I don't want an idol that can't fill me. 
to repent of that work. Then the third thing we'll do is to literally and spiritually feast on Christ. Instead of taking in the gold of the golden calf, gold is the most precious thing the world has to offer, we're gonna take in something more precious, the body and blood of Jesus. And in that moment, we're gonna turn our hearts and say, Jesus, I want you. Help me on Monday morning. Jesus, I want you. Help me on Tuesday morning. Jesus, I want you. I don't wanna run after false gods. 